Hi, this is Melissa with Mix In Some Magic. Welcome to my podcast. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so happy you're here. We had some exciting news come out of the Disney realm yesterday. I'm sure you've heard about it. If not, let me catch you up. Disneyland has announced that they will be opening, not opening. I just got some people excited. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to use the word opening. They are going to be having a new event and opening a soft opening I guess you could say the rides won't be open or anything like that, but they're going to be opening parts of California Adventure beginning March 18th for a special Disney event called A Touch of Disney. So there's been rumors that something like this was going to happen. There's been rumors going around for quite some time, and we finally got word that it is actually happening, and we got a lot of great information yesterday. So I want to go over that with you real quick in case this is something that you're interested in doing. I want you to be prepared. So it starts March 18th and goes through April 5th, which is is what, like three weekends? It's very short. It only runs Thursday through Monday, so it's not open on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, and um, it's open from 12 p.m. till 8 p.m., so you get eight hours in California Adventures, no rides, but there are some pretty cool things that they've got going on. First of all, let me tell you, the tickets are $75, and that includes parking, and you get to park at the Mickey and Friends parking structure. Parking opens up at 11.30 a.m. It includes a $25 A Touch of Disney dining card, redeemable for food and non-alcoholic beverages at select dining locations with, within the Disneyland Resort. So we're assuming it will be kind of like the Food and Wine Festival where you get a card and there's little tabs that you can break off and use towards food at the event, probably at the kiosks that they'll have out and about. And you'll also get unlimited downloads of digital Disney photo pass photos that you can have taken while you're there for the experience. So $75 for all of that. I mean, $25 goes towards your food. So I don't know. I think it's a pretty good deal. Maybe I'm just desperate to be at Disney. I don't I don't know, but I'm happy with the pricing. I think it'll be fun, especially with the photo pass included. I thought that was pretty great. So tickets can be purchased in advance online only, and you have to select the date that you're going when you purchase your tickets. So tickets will go on sale March 4th, and... They're going to be coming out on a rolling basis. So we don't have information yet about which dates will be available March 4th, but probably just the earlier ones. And then they'll release more dates as the event continues. Uh, They're going to have some pretty awesome dining choices. I'm really excited about this. So they're going to bring back some classic things from Disneyland. They're going to bring them over to California Adventures like Dole Whips, churros, Disney, I mean, California Adventure always had churros, but they'll have churros and they're even going to have the famous Monte Cristo sandwich. I like to imagine that they're over in New Orleans Square cooking them up and then they just walk them across the way to California Adventure. 
Probably that's how it works, right? So we are expecting a foodie guide to come out soon. So if you're interested in that, keep an eye on my Instagram or my Facebook page because I will put that out as soon as we have it. But they're going to have all the information on the food that will be available. But they're going to have an open air market. Um, we're assuming similar to the food and wine festival where they'll have carts and a lot of their food options are going to be served in snack sized portions so that you can fill up on more things. I'm super excited about it. So I have a list. I just made up a blog post all about what's included and all that kind of stuff. So there's a whole list of all of the food carts that are going to be available. I mean, one of them is Disney Delish. It says, sink your teeth into new twists on classic sweets like the very, very, very Mickey waffle. You guys, they're going to have Mickey waffles there. I know. I couldn't be more excited. Oh, so I will put a link to the blog post post in my um, show notes so that you can check it out. They're also going to have snack carts. The churro carts are going to be open. Popcorn carts drinks, um, bong bong, bong bongs, where's that, what's his name, that's his name, right, hold on, I'm looking for it, bing bongs, why did I call him bong bongs, oh, you do guys even know that I hate him so much, he's my least favorite Disney character in the history of all the world, I can't even, don't even get me started on him, I don't want to talk about it, but that's why I can't remember his dang name, his name is bing bong, Bing Bong Sweet Stuff is going to be open along with a bunch of different retail shops. So that's going to be fun. They're also going to have classic photo ops. I mean, I imagine like in Cars Land and all the classic places in front of the big Ferris wheel. Those photo ops will be available with photographers taking pictures, but they're also going to have some special photo ops, which I'm excited about. And there's going to be character sightings so Mickey and many of his friends will be out and about to greet guests in a socially distanced way but I'm so excited about that too I think it's going to be amazing there they announced that they're going to have a new soundtrack available that will be playing throughout California Adventure with like reimagined Disney favorites so I don't know what that's all about but I'm excited about that Um, Of course, all of the standard safety procedures that we've come to expect from Disney will be in place. There'll be um, temperature screenings. Everybody's going to be wearing masks. Two and up have to have a mask on. Enhanced cleaning procedures. Uh, Did I already say physical distancing? Obviously, physical distancing. Sorry, there's Smokey. I could put him in his kennel while I do this, but then I feel bad. Poor puppy. He doesn't want to be in his kennel. He just wants to play with his annoying squeaky toy. I should just put him away. I should put the squeaky toy away before I start this, but obviously I didn't. What are you going to do? So anyway, I'm super excited about this. I am nervous that it's going to be difficult to get tickets. I already booked a hotel. I booked a flight. I'm praying that I can get tickets to this event. So hopefully it's not too difficult. Um, Downtown Disney will still be open, so you'll be able to go and visit Downtown Disney as well. The only thing I'm surprised about is that it's lasting such a short amount of time. I assumed that it would go longer. I mean, three weekends is not very long. Maybe they're just kind of um, 
seeing how it goes. And they did announce that this is introductory pricing. So I'm not sure if they're going to expand later and raise the price. That wouldn't make, I mean, that wouldn't be surprising. But I can't imagine that they would, if this is successful, that they would just shut it off and not continue with anything else. Smokey. Smokey. Shh. Stop. So we will find out. I mean, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for them to try it out at California Adventure and then maybe expand it and open something different. Maybe April and May at Disneyland. Oh man, I'm such a sucker. I would have to go to both. So anyway, that's all the information we have so far. I am waiting to find out what time tickets go on sale March 4th so that I can try my very best to get one. I'm, I'm nervous. I'm stressed about it. I had a Disney stress dream last night, which just goes to show my anxiety about it. Whenever I get stressed, I have Disney-related stress dreams. So last night I dreamt that I was at the event and I was holding so much food in my arms. So I had like a Monte Cristo sandwich and I had popcorn and I had a Dole Whip and I had a drink and I had all this stuff that I was holding and then a bunch of characters started coming by and they were absolutely adorable and some of them were rare, like Chip and Dale were there and then Meg from Hercules was there and I couldn't get out my phone to take pictures and videos and I was super stressed and because I was holding all this food so I had no way to reach down and get my phone so I was trying to find a place where I could set everything down so I could take pictures and anyway, it was stressful but there you go. All right, I gotta go take the squeaky toy away from Smokey, but when I get back, we are going to talk about the history of Frontierland, and I'm super excited to share all the things I learned with you guys. It was a pretty different place back in the day when Disneyland opened. All right, I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Smokey agreed to be quiet, but he's kind of a liar, so we'll see if he can really handle it. He's supposed to be taking a nap. I don't know why he's not. He hasn't slept all morning. It's like having a toddler. I'm not even joking. A biting toddler. Okay, anyway, Frontierland. We're going to talk about the history of Frontierland. So I want to read you the original dedication Um by Walt Disney. Frontierland. It is here that we experience the story of our country's past, the color, romance, and the drama of frontier America as it developed from wilderness trails to roads, riverboats, railroads, and civilization, a tribute to the faith, courage, and ingenuity of our hardy pioneers who blazed the trails and made this progress possible. I love that. He also said that frontier land is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. You probably recognize that from his dedication of Disneyland speech. 
1955, Old West fever peaked in America, and this was right during the construction of Disneyland. With John Wayne and Gary Cooper on the silver screen and Hopalong Cassidy and the Lone Ranger on the TV, it's no wonder Walt was inspired to create Frontierland. At first, Frontierland did not contain much. It was just lots of open wilderness, which guests could explore by stagecoach or pack mules or wagons. They had lots of walking trails, and it was huge. It took up all of where New Orleans Square is now and Critter Country. Like All of that was considered Frontierland. So it was just this kind of massive expanse of wilderness, which I guess is what frontier the frontier was back in the old west so that's how it used to look if you are interested look up some old maps so you can see just how much space frontierland actually took up so Walt wanted to use frontierland to bring history to life guests could interact with united states cavalry soldiers and native americans representing 17 tribes Walt believed in learning from the past and he wanted to show this in Frontierland, but the lessons had to be entertaining. So frontiersmen wearing buckskin and fringe greeted guests along wooden plank walkways, while heroes and bandits brawled in the streets and had Western-style shootouts. So they had these big Western shootout shows where they had bandits and heroes up on top of the buildings, and there was guns and people falling off buildings and all kinds of things like that. I mean, I'm sure you've seen similar shows, Western style shows. So that was all part of Frontiersland. Apparently, some of these shows could be pretty realistic. So according to Marty Schuyler of Wed Enterprises, on one trip, King Mohammed V of Morocco was caught off guard by the authenticity of the performance. Although the park worked closely with State Department security for all of these visits, Somehow, the Western bad man did not get the word about the head of state's visit. When Black Bart started to go into his act and reached for the gun in his holster, he realized just in time that there were at least half a dozen weapons pointed at him and none of them had blanks. <laughs> so apparently there was almost a real shootout right in the middle of Frontierland. I guess this was before the days where they did um, security checks. Of course, maybe if you're the king of Morocco your bodyguards can bring in guns to Disneyland. I don't know the rules, but I thought that was a funny story. Frontierland had a Davy Crockett Frontier Museum because Davy Crockett was huge back then. I can't remember the number, but I read the amount of coonskin caps that they were selling and it was crazy. There was definitely Davy Crockett fever. So they had a Davy Crockett Frontier Museum the U.S. Marshal's office, a jail, and a general store that you could visit. Guests could watch blacksmiths in action, shoeing horses and making harnesses. And they even had an arcade where they could, guests could fire authentic buffalo guns, which I'm assuming the arcade is similar to the shooting gallery that they have now. But the very best part of Frontierland may have been the Golden Horseshoe Saloon, which is still there today. Walt asked Harper Goff to replicate the saloon from the 1953 movie Calamity Jane. And unbeknownst to Walt, Goff had designed the set for the movie. So it wasn't hard for him at all. He just pulled out his old designs and got to work. 
Well, Walt had a reserved box next to the stage, and he even auditioned the original cast of the Golden Horseshoe Review himself. Um, Opening day advertising promised that in addition to a rollicking stage show, guests sidling up to the counter would be surrounded by all the familiar Wild West characters, the traders and trappers, cowhands, two-gun men, dudes, and dance hall girls. So pretty fun. I don't know about you, but I love the Golden Horseshoe. I love the shows that they have there, and I would have loved to see the original show with the original cast. So like I mentioned before, Frontierland was wide open and huge. It featured an Indian trading post, a New Orleans area, and the restaurant Casa de Fritos, which had an atmosphere of authentic old Mexico. Guests had lots of options when they were in Frontierland. They could join the hardy pioneers to blaze new trails in the Golden West aboard various early modes of transport, or take a prospector's trip packing into the desert with a burrow train in search of gold and adventure. So I've seen pictures of kids and people on these mules, on the, their burrow train in search of adventure, and... I don't, I mean, you can't tell the weather from the picture, but I've been in California when it's hot and I just pictured myself in the middle of this desert frontier land on the back of a mule in the heat and it just did not sound enjoyable at all. I could see maybe it would be fun when it was cooler, but a good portion of the weather in California is hot a good portion of the time and so... I'm not surprised that they don't still offer this because I can't imagine many people want to trek through the desert on the back of a burrow in the California heat. But they used to. (laughs) That used to be happening. So Walt had a deep respect for nature and he was very concerned about its stewardship. He wanted in Frontierland to capture the grandeur of the Southwest. He said, if certain events continue, most of America's natural beauty will become nothing more than a memory. The natural beauty of America is a treasure found nowhere else in the world. Our forests, water, grasslands, and wildlife must be wisely protected and used. While there was lots of fun to be had on land, perhaps there was even more adventure that could be found on the water in Frontierland. Just beyond the town crossroads, guests could board the Mark Twain Riverboat to explore the rivers of America. At 105 feet long and 150 tons, the riverboat was the first stern wheeler constructed in the U.S. for more than 50 years. When it opened, it steamed past towns built to resemble small southern towns. A year later, visitors could ride the river in Indian war canoes that were later renamed the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes. Have you guys ever ridden in those canoes? I never have. I've seen people ride in them, but I've never done it. I think that needs to be on my list someday when we go back to Disneyland and they have the canoes out. I've heard it's fun, but I heard you can get wet and I've heard it can be a lot of hard work, especially if you get in a boat that has some bad rowers or some small children. It can be a lot of effort. Anyway, it looks fun. In 1958, the sailing ship Columbia made its debut. I didn't realize this, but it's a full-size replica of the first ship to carry the American flag around the world. And it carried the American flag from 1787 to 1790. I had no idea, but we love the sailing ship Columbia. 
when my kids were little, they loved to go aboard and they used to have these pretend mops so that you could swab the decks. It was really cute. So my kids always remember that. They always called it a pirate ship, but I had no idea that it was a full-size replica of an actual ship that was important in American history. I'm going to take a quick break, go check on Smokey. I can't see him from where I'm sitting and he's being very quiet, which makes me very nervous. So I'm going to take a quick break, go check on him, and when I come back, we'll finish talking about the history of Frontierland. If you're like me and needing your Disney fix, you may be planning on visiting Disney World in 2021, which I think is a great idea. If you are, I can help you. I have a full Disney World planning guide on my website that will be super helpful, but I also make custom Disney World itineraries for guests. This is especially helpful for people who have never been there before, who want to avoid waiting in long lines, who aren't sure where they should eat, what rides would be best for their small children, what rides to avoid if they get motion sickness, what time they should arrive in the parks, all those little details that are so important to your trip, but that are really hard to gauge, especially if you've never been to the park, or if you just don't have the time to figure it all out for yourself. I can help, it's what I do, and I love it. So right now I'm working with a little family who's heading to Disney World in May and we've been talking about the best places for dining that their little girls will enjoy. So I'm helping them book that. They have two little girls. It's their first time to Disney World and I'm so excited for their trip. So I'm making up an itinerary for them so that they can show up to the park and know exactly what to do and where to go and not waste time trying to figure out where they should be. Plus, since it's a custom plan, I'm able to factor in things like these little girls are going to be tired and they're going to want to go to bed early and maybe some days they need to sleep in and things like that. So I make these custom plans that are totally custom to your family, to your group. I've been doing it for a couple of years and I love it. So if you are needing some help with your Disney World planning, please check out my website. I've got tons of articles and information that will be helpful to you, and there's also information on there about my custom Disney World plans. I will put some links in the show notes, but please let me know if you have any questions. I'm so happy to answer them for you. If I don't know the answer, I will try to find somebody who does, but let me know how I can help. Okay, Smokey's sleeping. Hallelujah. Hopefully it lasts at least a little while. Let's talk about the Frontierland train station. That's what it used to be called because it used to be in Frontierland. Now the train station has not, has not moved, but now it's in New Orleans Square. But that used to be part of Frontierland, and it was called the Frontierland train station. It was built to resemble drawings from the 1949 Disney film So Dear to My Heart which I have never heard of, but I think I'm going to go look it up and see what that's all about. Frontierland 
used to have horse-drawn carriages. And I don't know about you, but I have wondered this myself. I mean, when I'm in Frontierland, you expect to see horses because that's kind of the time period. And if you notice the ground when you're in Frontierland, it's one of my favorite parts about Frontierland, but they're in the ground imprinted into the ground are horseshoes all over and also boot prints. So you can see footsteps of cowboys and their horses all over Frontierland, but you never actually see a horse in Frontierland. Well, there is a reason for that. Frontierland used to have horse-drawn carriages, but the whistles from the Disneyland Railroad would spook the horses all the time, so they finally had to remove them from Frontierland, which I thought was pretty interesting. Now, you've probably noticed when you are at the train station, you'll hear a tapping, like a telegraph going out, and that is actually Walt's speech from opening day being sent out via telegraph, which is kind of interesting and fun. A year after Disneyland opened, Walt expanded the desert area of Frontierland and he added a train ride. And the train chugged past an old mining town, it had natural rock features, an underground cavern filled with geysers and multicolored stalactites and stalagmites. And from the train, guests could view 22 breathtaking water effects, including the main event, which was called Rainbow Falls, and that had water that flowed down from in eight different colors that glowed from a black light behind it. So the train was named the Rainbow Cavern Mine Train, and the stagecoach and mule packs that had been there since Frontierland opened were renamed the Rainbow Mountain Stagecoaches and the Rainbow Ridge Pack Mules. I want to read you a little part from Chris Nicholas's book, Walt Disney's Disneyland, where he talks about the Indian village that was there in Frontierland. So it says, The Indian village, which presented the authentic dances of different Native American tribes, grew significantly in 1956 and was enlarged again in 1962. Tribal members hired by the park built their own dwellings and totem poles and created birch bark lodges and teepees. Their day-to-day presence was groundbreaking in an era where many visitors' exposure to Native Americans was limited to those on their TV screens. At the 1958 dedication of the Grand Canyon Diorama, 96-year-old Hopi Chief, oh, I'm going to mess up his name, Hopi Chief Nevengawa? Oh, I don't know. I'm so sorry. Anyway, the Hopi Chief blessed the trains that would carry visitors past the world's longest diorama at the time, which depicted the flora and fauna of Arizona's greatest Great South Rim Abyss. So you can still find some totem poles today in Frontierland, and I was wondering if those were possibly the same ones made by the Native American tribes back in the 1960s, the 1950s, but I looked it up and they are not, which is too bad because that would have been pretty great. You may have noticed that many uh, restaurants in original Disneyland when it opened had name brand names. So this is because that they were sponsored, they were sponsoring Disneyland. So they got to put a restaurant in there 
and they got to put their name on it and that was one of the main reasons that Disneyland was able to open because of all these sponsors. So I mean places like Casa de Fritos that we talked about or there is the Welch's grape juice stand in Fantasyland and all along Main Street. We haven't talked about the history of Main Street yet. We'll get there. But all along Main Street they have all these sponsors, um, these brands essentially that sponsored Disneyland and they were able to open up in their shop but maybe the most famous or popular one that maybe you've heard about was Aunt Jemima's Pancake House. So back when Disneyland opened then this was part of Frontierland but it was located on New Orleans Street but it's now in New Orleans Square. So It was originally Aunt Jemima's Pancake House. It opened in 1955 and was open until July of 1970. Um, It never actually really closed down. It was just rethemed into the Riverbell Terrace in 1970. So you can still go and visit it today, but it will obviously look different. And I don't know that the food is quite amazing as it used to be. This place was very, very popular, and I wish that I had been able to visit it because it sounds like it's right up my alley. Let me tell you some of the things that they had there. Okay, they served pancakes and waffles. You know I love waffles. Hot breads. Um, Yes, please. Golden crisp French fried foods made, made with Aunt Jemima's batter dipping and breading and glamorous desserts. It sounds absolutely delightful. I wish there was a place like that now where I could go get hot bread. Um, That sounds incredible. So the restaurant served mainly breakfast food until 1962 when it was renamed Aunt Jemima's Kitchen and they expanded the menu to include a lot of more um, lunch and dinner type options. So they expanded just from pancakes and breakfast foods. The restaurant hosted the annual Aunt Jemima Pancake Race on National Pancake Day at Disneyland. And this sounds like fun. So participants wore Aunt Jemima official pancake race aprons. And while carrying griddles with hot pancakes on it, the contestants ran to the finish line while tossing their pancakes over ribbons strung across the course. While attempting to catch the pancakes back on the griddle. So it sounds like they were flipping pancakes over these ribbons and trying to catch them on the other side while racing through the course. The first one across the finish line with the pancake won a hundred dollar prize, which today would be almost a thousand dollar prize. That sounds pretty amazing. Doesn't that sound like fun? I didn't realize this, but there were 21 Aunt Jemima kitchen locations across the United States, and there was even one in Bristol, England and Toronto, Canada. I was kind of thinking that it was just an exclusive Disneyland thing, but Aunt Jemima Kitchen was actually a very successful business, and you could find their locations all around the United States. Well, in 1956, there was another sponsor called Nesbitt's Soda. I've never even heard of them. Nesbitt's Soda sponsored a new attraction called Tom Sawyer's Island. So Walt loved that the only way that you could reach Tom Sawyer's Island is by raft, and he designed much of the island himself. Originally, it featured a dock for fishing. I don't know if this was real fishing. Like, were they really letting small children that close to the water? 
I mean, it was the 50s. Maybe they were. So I don't know if if that was an actual thing, if they were actually fishing, but it kind of sounds like it. Uh, they had caves and trails to explore, uh, Fort Wilderness, a suspension bridge, a burning settler's cabin, which <laughs> they don't have that today. And there was even a treehouse and life like a North American wildlife. So it sounds like it was kind of similar to how it is today. I mean, right now we have the pirates themed. There was, you know, some pirates theming in the caves and things like that. And there's no burning settlers cabin, but there is a lot more piratey theme, which is fun. Referring to Tom Sawyer's Island, Walt said, This is proof of our success. I wouldn't be able to get money for expansion if Disneyland hadn't been paying off. And it was indeed paying off. The park saw 2 million guests during the first six months without, with adults outnumbering children 3 to 1. 2 million guests in the first six months. That's crazy. And I know that there's lots of talk about how crazy and busy Disneyland is now. Not now, but pre-COVID. But I've been looking at a ton of old pictures and there are people everywhere. I mean, it is jam-packed. So I know that there aren't really slow seasons like there used to be, but I don't really believe that Disneyland was always empty and that it just used to be tons of, you know, open space and not very many visitors, maybe occasionally, but Disneyland's always been very popular and there's always been plenty of guests who are willing to pay the ticket price and get in there and enjoy all the sights and attractions and there are tons of pictures to prove it. Part of Disneyland's success was Walt's desire to always be pushing the limits of technology. He always wanted to do things just a little bit better and push it a little bit farther and see what he could do to create things that were the very best and cutting edge. More than 200 mechanical animals were added to Frontierland in 1960, including bears and birds and reptiles and beavers. And these were cutting edge technology, these animatronic animals, like it hadn't been done other places, especially on this scale. So this was cutting edge, but they did run into a couple of problems. This story is from Bob Gurr. He says, right after the first birds were installed, a big ruckus was going on. Seems the real birds resented the presence of the phony birds and were pecking them to bits. Gurr explained how he and the wed Imagineers got lifelike movements without the programming that generally was involved for more sophisticated audio-animatronic figures. The elk machine was basically two elks connected by the antlers. By adjusting the air, the air valve flow rates, we could get real random but predictable actions almost as good as the later fully programmable digital show-controlled systems. He added that the elk ran trouble-free for many years. The talented crew at WED Enterprises could ensure that Walt's visions were realized even years before the technology caught up with them. A huge Disneyland favorite that's no longer there was a big thunder ranch. Does anybody remember this? I bet lots of people do. It was opened in 1986 and was open all the way until 2016 when it was closed to make way for Galaxy's Edge. Some people were so disappointed when it was closed. So this area included an outdoor petting zoo, a walk-through log cabin, and 
a bunch of scenery and setting to make you feel like you were in a western ranch. So it was located near Big Thunder Mountain and you could find a little petting zoo at one point. They had sheep and goats and cows and other farm animals and among these animals were two turkeys who received presidential pardons in honor of Thanksgiving in 2008. The dining area was absolutely legendary. It was known as the Big Thunder Barbecue. And everybody loved it. There are copycat recipes all over the internet. So if you're needing some barbecue, check out some of those. But everybody loved it. It was an all-you-can-eat place. And I heard of people who would stay there for hours. And, you know, dads who would send their kids with... Their families off to go on rides and they would just sit there and eat and eat and apparently the food was amazing. I have eaten there but I was younger and I don't remember the food so I'm going to take everyone's word for it but it sounded amazing. There were so many people who were incredibly disappointed when it closed. There was also an entertainment area. They closed down the petting zoo at one point to make room for an outdoor theater that at one point, I guess they had a live show that was themed to the Hunchback of Notre Dame. That only lasted a couple years. I don't know how that fits in with a Western Frontierland theme, but I didn't see it. So what do I know? There you go. But the ranch hosted Billy and the Hillbillies, which they used to be part of the Golden Horseshoe Saloon, and then they moved over there. And some of the food that they served sounds amazing. It was American-style barbecue, including chicken, pork, sausage, beans, corn on the cob, cornbread, coleslaw, lemonade, and fruit cobbler. And while you were enjoying this all-you-can-eat buffet, then musicians perform traditional American country and folklore sing-along songs, and there was the stage show, and the musicians would interact with the diners, and it was just a really fun atmosphere, really good food, all you can eat, and people were really bummed when it closed. So this was a fan favorite for sure that is now a part of Frontierland history. Everybody's favorite Frontierland ride, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, did not open in Disneyland until 1979 which surprised me. For some reason, I assumed it opened earlier, but it did not. Um, at Disneyland, the rockwork design is based on the hoodoos of Bryce Canyon National Park in Utah. And apparently, there is a crazy detailed backstory of this ride, which I had never heard of. It's not really conveyed to you I mean, not when you're in line. Listen to this backstory. This is from Wikipedia. So, it's got to be right. So, sometime in the late, eight, the late 1800s, gold was discovered on Big Thunder Mountain in the American Southwest. Overnight, a small mining town became a thriving one. It was called Rainbow Ridge. Mining was prosperous and an extensive line of mine trains was set up to transport the ore. Unknown to the settlers, the mountain was a sacred spot to local Native Americans and was cursed. Before long, the settlers, the settlers desecration of the mountain caused great tragedy, which, depending on the park for Disneyland, was an earthquake. 
It befell the mines and the town, and the town was abandoned. Sometime later, the locomotives were found to be racing around the mountain on their own without engineers or crew. The Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was founded in the old mining camp to allow wanderers to take rides on the possessed trains. So, do you believe that? Do you think that's the backstory of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad? I don't know. I never once... As I'm in line or riding it, did I feel like I was riding on a possessed train racing around an abandoned mine? But there you go. That's what it says on Wikipedia, and we all know that they're not wrong. I mean, is there another backstory that I don't know about? I don't know. If that is true, they are not doing a very good job conveying it. I just kind of assumed we were in an old mining town and taking a ride that got a little crazy through the mines. I kind of like my backstory better. But there you have it. Do with that what you will. Now, I do know that this is true, that Disneyland's Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was built on the land where the mine train used to go through that we talked about. And there's several tributes to the former attraction on the Disneyland version. So they have the scaled down western town and the village is called Rainbow Ridge. So if you look closely, you'll be able to see little hints of Rainbow Ridge throughout. And many of the animal anim animatronics throughout the attraction are animatronic animals from the previous attraction. Other allusions to the mine train include the rainbow caverns, the, the glowing pools of water on the first lift hill, and the precariously, precariously balanced rocks on the third lift hill tunnel, and the name of the ride itself is kind of a tribute to it. Big Thunder was originally the name of a large waterfall on the old mine train that it passed by, the old mine train passed by on the tour, and then Little Thunder was the name of another waterfall on the tour. All right, I'm going to wrap this up with one more Walt Disney quote because you know I love them. So Walt wrote in 1958 of the Western expansion that inspired Frontierland and those who made it possible. All of us, whether 10th generation or naturalized Americans, have cause to be proud of our country's history, shaped by the pioneering spirit of our forefathers. It is to those hardy pioneers, men, and I would add women, a vision, faith, and courage that we have dedicated Frontierland. Even though Frontierland has changed immensely over the years, I think it still manages to capture that same pioneering spirit that Walt Disney was striving for. I love Frontierland. It's one of my favorites. Can I say that? All of the lands are my favorite. <laughs> But Frontierland's especially great. I do wish it was still a little bit bigger than it is. It seems like such a tiny little corner of the park. And some of the older attractions, it would be fun if they still had those as part of the Frontierland experience. Our favorite part, besides Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, is the shooting gallery that they have. If you haven't stopped by there, next time you're there, when the park's open, stop by the shooting gallery. It is so fun, and it, I think it's 25 cents, and you get 50 shots, maybe 25 shots. I don't remember, but it's very reasonably priced. My kids love it. We always bring a bunch of quarters, shoot the guns, and it's really fun. 
and every once in a while a cast member will just add a bunch of extra shots to your gun just to create a little magic. But that's one of our favorite parts of Frontierland. I also love the Golden Horseshoe. I love that they still do shows there. My kids have been able to be part of the shows where they pull them up out of the audience. They will sometimes have the dueling pianos, which is fun. That's one of our favorite spots to just take a break. It's always cool in there. There's always open tables. They have a... I shouldn't even tell you guys this. This is a secret. Don't tell anybody. They have this upstairs area that is always quiet. It's always a little dark. And if you need a nap, there is a couch up there. And you can go and sit on it or lay down, whatever you want. And no one will find you for quite some time. So if you're looking for a quiet place in the parks, upstairs on the Golden Horseshoe, that's the place to be. So we love going there. My very favorite treat of all time from Disneyland can be found at the Golden Horseshoe, but only at Halloween time, which is so disappointing. Maybe someday they'll bring it back and have it there continually. But it's a cookie dough ice cream with cookie butter and caramel and a churro, and it's amazing. Hopefully we'll all be able to get back to Frontierland soon. And I'm sorry if at any point I said Fantasyland instead of Frontierland. Please forgive me. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed learning all about the history of Frontierland. I enjoyed learning about it and putting this all together. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys. I'll be back next week with something new. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk soon.